Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Well, hey everyone, welcome along to the show. Um, this is your host, Stephen Moe, and I'm glad you could join me as we're going to get a chance to speak with Will McClellan, who's one of the co-founders of Epic, which is a really cool building in Christchurch, which was built soon after the earthquakes. And we talk about that, but also a whole bunch of other topics, including what it is that makes a good salesperson. Here's an excerpt from the interview. You know, do I need to follow uh-huh. the norm? Uh-huh. And I remember my godfather, Trevor, once saying, the problem with the rat race is that even if you win, you're still a rat, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, people have to follow their own path, but I'd made a clear decision that that was not going to be my long-term mm-hmm. path. So I remember having a chat with my business partners and saying, well, there's, there's literally nowhere to rent. Uh, so it was a question of, do we close the company? Do we move to Dunedin? Or do we build a building? I see. And the third one only came up after a few bottles of wine. Right. (laughs) That's a crazy idea. (laughs) Well, I know you're going to enjoy this conversation with Will, so we're going to get into it. And if you do, you might want to check out some of the more than 90 other interviews for Seeds Podcast. What I'm trying to do is build an ecosystem of stories that encourage other people to maybe try something new. And I think hearing other people's experiences and how they've approached life and why they've done what they've done really helps. I also wanted to share some news, which is I've become a partner at Perryfield Lawyers, which is the law firm where I've been working for the last few years. So yeah, just a quick shout out to all of you who've supported me in that in various ways. I know some of you only know me as the voice of this podcast, but actually in a day-to-day context, what I'm doing is helping startups, social enterprises, charities, and companies with their legal issues and looking for proactive solutions for them. And in fact, this coming week, I'll be up in Wellington presenting at an Akina-organized event about structures for social enterprises, and then helping to moderate a session about social enterprises at a conference at Te Papa, which is looking at the future of charity law and regulation. If any of those topics interest you, feel free to drop me an email, and I'd be happy to send you resources about those sorts of topics. So I'm really excited by the promotion because I think it's going to allow me to do even more of that. And if you do enjoy Seeds Podcast, then consider leaving a rating or review, telling a friend, or maybe even posting about one of your favorite episodes on social media, because it definitely helps to get the word out, and I can often see a spike in listens when other people are talking about the show, rather than me just being the one trying to promote it. Now let's get into this conversation with Will. All right, so it's a pleasure to welcome Will McCollin, who's the co-founder of Epic Innovation. Thanks for joining me. Pleasure, Stephen. Um, On this podcast, what we do is we talk about purpose and why people are doing what they do. But in order to get to there, I love to back up and find out where people are from. So if you could just tell us a bit about your childhood and, um, yeah, where were you from? Absolutely. So I was born in the UK and um, sort of had the regular childhood up until university. And like many Kiwis after uni, did a bit of an OE. Mm-hmm. and uh, traveled around the world and worked in different places to pay for that travel. Mm-hmm. And as a surprise, um, I got to spend some time in New Zealand, and it was a surprise because I'd never planned to. It was just on the ticket home. I had one of those round-the-world tickets, oh, okay. so I had to come here. Yeah, And I fell in love with the place. Of all wow. the places I've met, uh, I'd been. Um, and so just take us back to the UK, like your childhood and growing up. Had you heard of New Zealand or was it on your radar at all? Absolutely not on the radar. Yeah. I grew up in the city and then we kind of moved to a farm. 
So I had, a, a, I guess, a couple of different experiences, both city and agriculture. Mm. And, um, but it was all very much with a focus on the UK. Mm. And so, what, what took your, was it your parents moved to the farm? Was it yeah, yeah, we, getting um, away from the city on purpose? Or what was I the, guess the Kiwis would call it a lifestyle block. So okay. we, we had a bit of land and some horses and chickens and cats and dogs and things like that. Yeah. And um, that was the sort of the, the lifestyle that the family wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, when I left and went to uni, I was very practical. I, I needed to um, sort of get a job and support myself as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. But I ended up doing this kind of uh, OE, you know, working my way around the world right. and um, was just blown away by New Zealand, which had that mix of kind of the, the countryside lifestyle that I got to enjoy yeah. in our lifestyle block on steroids. You know, New Zealand has spectacular countryside uh, don't need to talk about that everybody knows um but also um i really appreciated the fact that maybe because it was a lot smaller there was a very welcoming culture um i could relate to it with this sort of um i guess it, it was a reasonably developed country i mm-hmm. wasn't uh, in the wilderness so you had everything you needed to survive mm-hmm. and i just remember getting on the plane and flying back to manchester and thinking why aren't I living there? This is amazing. Wow. Um, so out of all of the stops on the world, that was the one that really stood out. Yeah, I visited 11 countries on that trip mm-hmm. uh, over nine months, and New Zealand just, it had me. Yeah. Um, so I made a plan to work hard, pay off my student loans, do as well as I could for, I gave myself a five-year plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took me six. And then I landed in Auckland when I was 29, and I'd sold my house, I'd sold every possession, mm-hmm. left my family and friends back in the UK. I didn't know a single person in the country, mm. and I had a backpack. Wow. So just back up a little bit. When you Let's go through when you first arrived in New Zealand, the very first time. Like, Was there a moment, or when did you know this is the country that I've fallen in love with? Or was it as you were leaving, or how did that fit? Um, the realization was on the plane coming home. I right. remember enjoying the trip immensely. Um, it was almost overwhelming, though. Um, those people who maybe have moved here themselves, um, if, I guess, like anywhere, if you're born there, maybe you take certain things for granted. But mm. for me, it was that mixture of um, the extreme um, mountains popping up out of the plains, the proximity to the sea, but mm-hmm. the fact that you know there was towns and cities with all the mod cons nearby it seemed almost too good to be true i could surf and ski in the same day there was nice people it was relatively safe yeah speak uh, the it, language yeah it was <laughs> yeah. It, and there was all these microclimates so it was a very appealing place to have um to think of living and working mm. and it was just hammered home as we landed in manchester in the rain i was surrounded by sunburnt miserable-looking people in their holiday clothes who seem to be thinking, oh, my God, I've got 50 weeks before I've got another two-week holiday. And and that seemed the wrong way around for me. I was only in my early 20s, and I was like, why am I going to live somewhere and dream of being somewhere else? Right. Why don't I live in the place that I enjoy? Mm-hmm. And that's when I started, you know, thinking of plans. So that was the plan. Yeah, that was the, literally the genesis of the plan. The, <laughs> the bus home or, or whatever it was. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And um, what did your family think of that sort of decision? Were they? Um, I left home at an early age, so I left home when I was 17. Mm -hmm. Uh, My family were supportive. 
they were like, well, if, if that's what you want to do, mm. um, off you go. I always remember a comment my mum said, which is you uh, parents should give children roots and wings somewhere they can go back to, but the confidence to fly where they want to be. Mm. And um, maybe it was disappointing for them where I wanted to be was the opposite side of the planet, right? <laughs> <laughs> 20,000 kilometers away. Yeah. Um, but they never tried to stop me, which was great. They mm. did ask me serious questions, mm. but... Um, I I felt like you know I was supported and and when I landed here this was um, really my chance to craft the life I wanted it was Mm -hmm. completely clean page nobody knew me um, and it was a case of well how do you be the person you've always wanted to be Mm -hmm. it sounds cheesy but that's genuinely how I felt and I remember listening to on the plane as it landed to Eminem the song about having one shot you know, right. if would you take it? What you would got you? one shot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I felt very motivated to have the chance mm. to do that. Mm. Uh, so the person that I would have met before you got on the plane and the person who got off, what was different about them? Um, it depends which plane. If you met the person <laughs> that got on the plane to go traveling before New Zealand, mm. um, that was a, a guy that really had a very traditional view of I'm going to get a job. I'm going to work in a certain place, get a mortgage and a family, and and that's going to be it. Yeah, Traveling opened my eyes to how similar most people around the world are. It actually made me trust people a lot more. I had a reasonably interesting upbringing in terms of some conflict, mm-hmm. and so I wasn't a very trusting person. But after going around the world, I, I met lots of different cultures, and the vast majority of people were incredibly nice. Mm. So I, I got off the plane feeling like I could work more with people, I could do more. And um, that really, I think, helped me be successful in the UK. I worked very hard when I got my first job. I was, you know, at the office most nights. Um, Putting the hours in, huh? Yeah, absolutely, because yeah. I was in sales. And if you, if you didn't sell, you didn't get paid. Right. So it's um, good motivation. <laughs> I think the company I worked for only ever had seven salespeople, and I saw forty come and go during the time I was there. So right. you didn't do your target, you didn't keep your job. Yeah, and so I lived for work because I still had a, a vision of um, having to support myself. Mm-hmm. But I also now, because I'd got that job after travelling, I had a goal, mm. which was I need to make enough to support myself in New Zealand, hmm. and. Um, it was it was very motivating to um, put the hours in with an objective, mm. and that objective was no longer to buy a house and live a traditional, maybe what I considered a traditional mm. life. Mm. It's amazing to me that it stayed so fresh and so strong for you that it didn't sort of, you know, the first week goes by and it's a lovely memory, and then the second week, the month, three months in, it's like, yeah, I'll go back one day. But it had actually, like, it was a critical change in you it sounds like it was and it was hammered home by certain things um those people who've driven down the uk motorways will know that around junction one of the m40 there's a large fence and i used to smile as i sat in traffic there for up to an hour and someone had painted on that fence in like six foot high white writing why do i do this every day right (laughs) so if you look hard enough there were motivators out there to make you think you know do i need to follow Uh the norm Uh and i remember my godfather trevor once saying the problem with the rat race is that even if you win you're still a rat right (laughs) and um you know, people have to follow their own path, but I'd made a clear decision that that was not going to be my long-term path. Mm. Mm. 
Yeah, no, it's it's great. Um, my wife is from the UK, so she also like lots of her family. Well, all of her family is back near London. So for her to come to New Zealand, it, it's as you mm. pointed out, it's like literally the other side of the world. And um, so there's it, it. It's a interesting dilemma that you face as an international. And it. It takes commitment and sacrifice. Mm. I mean, uh, I used to smile when some people I'd talk to um, who knew I was leaving would say, are you so lucky? And I have a challenge with that because mm. maybe I'm lucky with my health. I, I would agree that, you know, mm. I'm, I'm, yeah, I have no influence over that other than looking after yourself. But sure. no one gave me the ticket. You know, no one made it easy for mm. you. you. You make those sacrifices of, of working hard to save up. Mm. Uh, you leave your family and friends behind. And, um, you know, in my case, you you kind of sell every possession and, and you're ready for that kind of clean slate. Mm. It's, you know, certainly easier for me because I didn't have kids. Mm -hmm. um, so I accept, you know, there's different challenges for everybody. But I don't believe luck played a part other right. than health. Yeah. You know, everything else was planned. Yeah. And there were sacrifices made. So I, that's that's enormously that kind of thing isn't to say oh I'm amazing it's to say so much is possible if you try not to rely on luck if you mm -hmm. go okay this is my goal what do I have to sacrifice to achieve it yeah the harder you work the luckier you get <laughs> yeah I, I really believe in that yeah yeah oh that's great so you mentioned um, I think you worked in the states as well is that right or well that, yeah when I that um, in between or. Well, I worked a bit in the States while I was traveling to pay for my tickets and things. That was just student sort of work, and I've worked in Australia doing the same. Mm -hmm. But when I came to New Zealand, um, like most people, I bought a house and I got a job. Mm -hmm. And after five years in that job, that was when the entrepreneurial interest started to raise. And right. with a couple of friends, we did the usual that many people all over the world have done. Hey, well, with your business skills and our coding skills, why don't we form our first company? Or at that time, we didn't say our first. It was let's form a company. Yeah. And I, I dived into the gaming, the computer gaming world oh. of uh, making computer games. So mm. we, we formed some companies and I had to. And what you brought to it was that sales experience and the dealing with people, right? Yeah. So I was yeah. CEO. So yeah. I had to sort of own and operate the company. And the other guys were more technical because mm. I couldn't code to save my life. Mm. And of course, with New Zealand, there's a very limited venture capital market because there's only four million people here mm. uh, yeah i wouldn't say it's as mature as the states or anywhere like that and gaming is not a very big industry here mm. so when you go to talk to capital raise people are sort of blink at you right go, oh computer games is that like in the pubs with the pokies right like, no it's on nintendo and playstation and pc and mm. the, the, they glaze over very quickly so raising capital was a challenge but then also because we only raised a small amount you need contracts to win work to pay staff so you can build products right yeah so i used to immediately have to jump on a plane and fly to the states mm. to go to the big games conventions and talk to the companies that were paying contracts I so see. so mm. my job was to go and find the money and bring it back to pay the staff right and um, that was why what I class as working in the States. So we I didn't see. have an office there. Yeah. I spent a lot of time there talking to people and trying to convince them why they should hire a couple of guys working above a cafe in Christchurch right. <laughs> rather than everyone else in the world. I see. Interesting, though. You know. So talk us through what do you think makes a good salesperson? You know, like when you're going into those sorts of meetings, what are the key elements? And you've met many people over the years. So what are the key things that you think really set someone apart? 
I think there's three sort of primary um, requisites that um, help, and then there's a bunch of skills and disciplines around them. Mm -hmm. So the most successful I've seen, and I've worked with and managed a lot, uh, you typically have somebody who knows the product really well. Mm -hmm. uh, your product salesman, they're an industry, uh, sorry, they're a sort of product specialist. They can talk very knowledgeably about something, answer all the right questions, mm -hmm. and give confidence to the customer that this person knows their stuff. The other side that I see a lot in consulting is you have people who know the client's world really well. Right. And if you're doing big multi-million dollar deals, you often get industry specialists. So someone who says, well, I just work with the education sector. I know the challenges of education. Or somebody goes, well, I work in construction. Mm -hmm. I know the problems of running a construction company. Right. And then they can walk into the meeting and they can use the acronyms and they can yeah, just yeah. relate because they've been there. Yeah, absolutely. So they live in the client's world. Yeah. Um, as opposed to the product salesperson who lives in the develop, you know, the product development world, and they know the product inside out. Yeah. And then you also have this sort of um, role in between the two that is a relationship person, mm -hmm. someone who understands humans and has maybe really good understanding of psychology and communication mm -hmm. and understands people appreciate being communicated to in different ways. Mm -hmm. Some people like the data. They don't want to get personal. They don't want to talk about relationships or share what they did at the weekend. They're mm -hmm. here to do business. Mm -hmm. And if you start asking them about the family, you're going to upset them. They yeah. don't know you. They don't want to be your friend. Yeah. Other people love a coffee and a chat and they want to get to know you and relationships are very important to them. Mm. So I think those three disciplines are uh, very powerful strengths. Mm. I don't think I've ever met anybody who's great at all three. Mm. So, um, you know, you either know industries really well, you can know products really well, or you're a great communicator. But yeah. they're kind of, when I'm meeting people, I'm thinking, which is your primary? Mm. And maybe which is your secondary and which yeah. is your tertiary? Yeah. And is the third one, that's the one I'm most interested in because the other two um, are about product and industry and things, but the people side of things always fascinates me. So you've obviously met a lot of people. When you walk into a room, can you quickly like tell the type of person? Like, Should you ask them about their children and their holiday? Or like, how do you... I do, I think about that. Mm. And it's mainly because you have the best conversations and you'll know having done so many podcasts when people are relaxed yeah you know being not relaxed is a huge barrier to open communication yes so um i think there's for me there's sort of two broad ways of, of looking at that when i walk into a room mm -hmm. one is um understanding tools and techniques that help you i guess have a model for how people like to be talked to differently and there's mm -hmm. things like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm -hmm. different personality profiling like DISC. Mm -hmm. Some are easier. Uh, if you know Maslow's, you're unlikely to immediately guess someone's an INTJ or an ESTP and ask mm -hmm. them 100 questions <laughs> in a questionnaire. Um, there's simpler methodologies like the DISC methodology. Does this person seem dominant? Uh, do they look yeah. excited by inspirational? Maybe they're a sensing person more about relationships or are they a closed C personality that just want the data? Yeah. So these are things that on one side of the um, table I'm, I'm sort of considering. Thinking about, yeah. Um, and then the other side is, is kind of not about them but about the world that they're in. You know, mm. what kind of job does this people person have? What's the physical environment that they're in? Um, you know, everything from body language to clothing. Mm. So it, it goes through my mind just because 
I don't want to behave in a way that upsets them. Mm-hmm. And the simplest example of that is if I walk into a room and I think somebody's um, quite a, a thoughtful person who doesn't like big booming voices and high energy, well, I'm, I'm going to act respectfully. Mm-hmm. If I'm in an environment with somebody who seems to get high energy off jokes and mm. being a bit more gregarious, Adventure, yeah. then I'll, I'll maybe go with that a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's such... They're such basic things, but I find uh, some they could be better understood by people. You know, the idea that we all have different personalities, different ways of interacting. And so the way that I relate to this person is different to this person. But, it, you know, it sounds so basic, but oh, it's, it's, um, it's, it's actually a skill in itself. To And it's so important. How often have you heard of somebody having a problem at work? Mm-hmm. And it's very rarely, sometimes it's a technical problem, but really frequently it's, oh, this person really upset me or they did this in a meeting. Or, yeah. And someone said to me once, there's a good way to get a bad message across, but you can even mess up getting a good message across if you do it the wrong yeah. way. Yeah. So I think the first thing is being mindful of the fact that not everyone's the same. We're not all wired the same. Yeah. Not everybody wants to go out to a loud party. Mm. Um, so I think the key is if you want to work with somebody and you're taking it to the table and mm. it's your idea, mm. you have to be respectful of how they want to consume the information. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really good. So let's just bring us up to speed, if you like, because we're sitting in the Epic Innovation Building right now. Um, can you just talk us through sort of what you were doing in Christchurch, um, maybe around the time of the earthquakes and what was what was going on? What was it like at that time? Well, it's a, a great link, actually, to the gaming companies. Mm. So we'd started, and we'd been going three years. So it, it scaled from myself and two friends to two companies with nearly 70 staff. And we'd gone from a room above the Hereford Street Boardroom Cafe to right. having three floors. I was in America a lot. Because <laughs> every time I turned up, we'd hired somebody else. Right. Oh, could you just pop back over there and win some more business? Because right. we've got more people to pay. <laughs> so it was high energy times. Uh, I remember Ben, um, the founder of Cerebral Fix, one of the directors coming in going, hey, I think we sh- this iPhone's just come out. Should we start making games for this? Yeah, I think, yeah, it sounds good. And all these interesting things had just kicked off. Yeah. And we were getting into them. And then Facebook, hey, look at this thing, Facebook. Do you think we should have a Facebook division? I well, see. So CF ended up as the largest Facebook game developer in the country, hmm. um, which was not a challenge at the time because nobody was doing it. Right. But it, was, it was all these new things that we were branching out into. Yeah. And I was literally in a... Which, sorry, can I interrupt you? Yeah. Isn't it amazing? Like, it's 2019 as we record this. It's not that long ago. Mm that there was no iPhone. The, yeah. The, the, these things that we're talking about, now we just take it for granted, but people who are listening, brand new. you know, that it was not that long ago that none of this was there. Absolutely. What's Facebook? It, Why do they call it Facebook? You know, like, we, what we is literally were having those conversations. Yeah, yeah. And um, I was sat in uh, one of our rooms with uh, the COO, Jeremy, and then it just felt like, all I could describe, a train hitting the building. Mm. Um, the lights went out, and at the same time, uh, I just saw Jeremy sort of fly through the darkness and disappear into the room next door, and I was, uh, you know, the, uh, my chair was flipped. The boardroom table flipped and landed on its top. Right. Uh, parts of the ceiling collapsed, and the shaking obviously just, just kept going yeah. and going and going, and it, it felt like forever. And I honestly thought, well, this is it. This building has to collapse. There was right. lots of screaming and noise, and it was complete darkness because there were no external windows. Ah. 
So, yeah, I was just in the darkness feeling the whole building coming down around us. And um, I thought, you don't think about much other than, no. well, am I, you know, I'm going to die here. I couldn't stand up. There was no way of getting a, a, a footing. You're just rolling around on the floor. The power was so great. Mm. And then it, it started to um, subside. I think it lasted 60 seconds. Mm. I'm sure of the data. It seemed to last about an hour. Mm. And then it all went quiet and then more screaming. Of course, it was all pitch black still. Mm. And I heard um, sort of generally sprint past because his first thoughts were of his family and kids. Mm. And uh, I sort of um, got into the doorway and um, there was there was a lot of noise and commotion. Mm. And I remember opening the fire doors and I was about to rush through, which was my first reaction. Mm. But then I remember thinking, hang on, you're the CEO, you've got to be the last guy out. So I held the doors open and we got people on the first and the second floors and third floors out mm. and um, when Brooke the CTO he'd gone I followed and then got into the street and obviously it was chaos and f realized I hadn't checked the toilets so I had to clamber back in over the, the broken sort of stairs and stuff and I found a guy in the toilets on the third floor just frozen really I wasn't wow. very PC or politically correct I just grabbed him and threw him down the stairs right <laughs> time to get out got him out of the building <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah so it was a it was a obviously a horrific time mm. and um, uh, then we kind of um, gathered in Cathedral Square with thousands of other people right uh, watching bits of the city kind of collapse around us mm. yeah it, it's a type of thing that you know you can't even describe it can you it's a, the, the it words it's like being in a bad movie yeah. uh, I remember thinking wow this is this is what it looks like you know to be in a, a crazy movie yeah. and uh, in fact there was there was a lot of people who dealt with it in different ways mm. some people were hysterical some people were silent some people were lying down mm. and i remember we just grabbed uh, a load of the chairs outside starbucks and um, put them in the middle of the town square for the people who were having the hardest time right maybe just you know some people who were injured or or just were physically shocked and couldn't mm. move and we created a sort of base there for a while until we found a safe way for people to get out of the city because uh, there were broken gas mains and, mm -hmm. um, you know, you didn't quite know what was the best way to um, get out of there. Mm. But um, yeah, I think most people made it home late that night after mm. we'd kind of woven our way um, into our various directions. But it was an absolutely um, horrific and bizarre scenario, but it also brought out the best in a lot of people i saw some some mm. real sort of heroism that day and some people really rallying and supporting each other mm. it was um it also gave me a lot of confidence in the human race mm. you see people in the worst situation uh, behaving at the best humanity can behave it mm. was good mm. in that respect yeah yeah I, I wasn't in christchurch at that time i was living in tokyo so about two or three weeks after the christchurch earthquakes there was the big earthquakes mm. in tokyo or in japan and I was in the 22nd floor and the buildings, I mean, it, we didn't know at the time that it was like hundreds of miles away because it was quite strong in mm. Tokyo as well. And all the buildings were swaying back and forth at different times. It was like a sci-fi movie, you know, looking out. And it's remarkable to be in something where you have no control. Yeah. Um, well, that moment you described of you're in the dark, you're looking around, this is it. Like, mm. I recall having very similar feelings being at the top and hearing my Japanese colleagues swearing mm. in Japanese, you know, oh. <laughs> and 
and wondering, you know, when was this building built again? Yeah, <laughs> it's an odd feeling because you yeah. always you watch the movie and you think, oh, I'd do this or I'd do that or I'd do the yeah. other. But when you're immobile, mm. no matter how hard you try, mm -hmm. um, there's the, it's a very odd, <laughs> not a very pleasant feeling. But it, it's it's interesting if you make it through it that sort of self reflection. Yeah, yeah. So I guess um, after the earthquakes and things like. Um, what what came next and and the cities as we know was devastated at the time we're now sitting in this building that, that sprung up yeah on a time scale fairly quickly afterwards right I mean can you just describe a little bit about what yeah. was going on what what was behind this building so it, I'm very proud of the fact that and certainly not pride that I did it all myself but it, epic was built two years ahead of pretty much every other development mm -hmm. Um, immediately after the earthquakes, I got home and our house had been destroyed, so we had nowhere to live, which mm. was a challenge. Uh, the roof had collapsed. So we stayed with friends. We sort of became nomads, my wife and I, and uh, lived on people's floors uh, until we could find somewhere to rent. As you can imagine, rental was yeah. a premium because about 100,000 buildings have been um, damaged or destroyed. Mm -hmm. So you kind of, this one side is life and general living and eating and sleeping. And the other side was the fact we had loads of people to pay. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and staff to look after, but their houses are gone. And, mm. you know, we also couldn't work because our equipment had all been destroyed. I see. And we couldn't even get in the building because the red zone had gone around the city. Uh, yes. So all our work was in the middle of the city. And um, it took months to get the insurance. Uh, the startup world does not have big cash reserves to go, we'll just go and pay premium for whatever space is available yeah. and buy a load of new equipment. And, you know, so the actual first thing I had to do was sneak into the red zone through two police and a military cordon and try and get the data out mm. of our building that was forbidden. Right. <laughs> so that was an interesting experience one morning, blagging my wife past the police and the military with my wife. Yeah. Uh, but once we got the tape, we then obviously um, had to get both the physical equipment to get the teams working again mm. and find an environment. Mm. So you needed the data that was like a backup or something. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it sounds like a video game itself. It was. <laughs> this is your challenge. It was a challenge. Make your way through the. It had everything from a movie <laughs> and a video game yeah. in it. And, and it was a yeah, really weird experience packing a backpack with kind of flares and various things because there mm -hmm. was no power. Mm -hmm. So if you're going into dark buildings, you needed torches and headgear and all that kind of stuff. So it was. Yeah. It was kind of something we'd never even, you know, don't think about it, but you just have to deal with it at the time. And then again, you start seeing the good in humanity come out. So um, I would ring around my network and say, look, is there anywhere I can put the staff and the guys to get going again? Yeah. People were bringing in whatever equipment they had to get working and coding and developing products for the customers. Mm -hmm. Customers were great. They obviously understood the situation, but mm -hmm. you know there's only a window that they're going to sure. be able to be great for. You still need them to pay because everybody still needs food and money mm -hmm. and pay. So we ended up sort of nomadically moving our teams around whatever buildings were available um, mm. for a startup because you can't pay the big rent because, of course, the big law firms and the big mm -hmm. accountants and maybe the more the banks, they all need accommodation and mm. they can pay a lot more than a startup. So what you found in Christchurch was the habitable accommodation was gone. Right. And the startups either went bankrupt and closed, or they left the city, or they they kind of clustered in broken buildings. 
And we ended up sharing space with a government uh, organization in one of their buildings that went from having 25 people to 125 people literally overnight. And industrial research, which is now Callahan, were Mm. fantastic. Mm. We moved 60-odd people into a space for 10. And for um, probably a year, that was was our home. Co-working space. Yeah. (laughs) Now, the challenge was a couple of months into that space, they said, oh, we've sold the building, so you can't stay here long. And one of the big companies that needed space, of course, they just rock up with cash and buy whatever is safe. Mm. So I remember having a chat with my business partners and saying, well, there's, there's literally nowhere to rent. All the spaces are being taken by the big companies. Mm-hmm. Building places, it was off the charts. No insurance, you know, it was taking years for people to solve those problems. Uh, so it was a question of, do we close the company? Do we move to Dunedin? Or... Do we build a building? I see. And the third one only came up after a few bottles of wine. Right. Nobody else. That's a crazy idea. Yeah. (laughs) It was with Colin uh, Anderson, who's the CEO of um, Effectus, his company, and and co-founder of Epic. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we literally were having a drink one night and and saying, "What do we do?" Yeah. And uh, that was where the crazy idea of, "Hey, maybe, maybe we should build a campus." Right. That's great, and and it was a it was an interesting uh, situation because we the next morning we met up and had a coffee and we wrote down all the reasons we shouldn't. We got no money, no land. We're in an earthquake zone. We've never done it before. The businesses need us. We're homeless. We've no experience. It was a big list. Yeah, I get that sense. <laughs> and then on the right hand side, we went. Well, at least we know the list. So on the right hand side, what are our strengths? And we're like, well, we've got a good network. We know there's other people around here. Uh, we have maybe we should treat this like a lean startup rather than a property development because we're going to have to break every rule in the book anyway. I see. So we actually took the minimum step on a business lean canvas, which was look, what do we want to build? And because we've been forced to share space with a lot of other companies, mm-hmm. we will actually it's really great sharing space. You don't have to pay for your own toilets and meeting rooms when they're out of use. Mm. You get the benefit of even when there's aftershocks coming through, hearing other teams sort of joking and you get a bit of camaraderie going. Mm. Um, and it was interesting to see that kind of community building. So we mm-hmm. said maybe we can scale that. And so the first thing we did was we uh, invited all our friend CEOs to actually the Polytechnic, which was one of the only buildings big enough mm. and, and vertical where we could get maybe 50 people in a room. Mm-hmm. And we put a pitch to them and said, if we build this, will you come? Right. And 30 of them said, we'd like to hear more. Hmm. That's how it all started. Yeah, that's amazing. And so what, when timing wise in terms of the earthquake and then this sort of discussion and things like is it a couple of months later or when when was it happening we kicked it off a couple of months yeah. after and um you know epic's been standing now six years mm-hmm. and we're about what eight years since the quake yeah so it took us eight, the way i look at it is we, we kicked off the conversations a few months after when we'd been moved around and you were you felt like you were living 50 hour days and it was constant 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 yeah once we came up with the plan, we knew we had to move quick because, well, I knew we had nowhere to put our teams again. And Colin, I think his team had already moved half a dozen times in a couple of months. So the broad speaking was it took us about six months to get partnerships in place with about 15 companies who were going to help us build the place and make the land available and get the funding and all the skills and architecture, etc. Right. And we had 
companies who'd signed up memorandums of understanding of wanting to be tenants. So that was like the first six months. Yeah. Then we had six months of due diligence and that nearly killed us both. Mm. Uh, I quit during that time. It was too hard. Mm. Building, rebuilding your home, getting your business going again and building a campus in an earthquake zone, not recommended. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it was cripplingly hard. And fortunately, when I rang Colin that day, um, pretty much smoking and in tears, he said, take the weekend, relax, call me on Monday. And I got some stuff sorted and called him on Monday and said, yeah, sorry about that, mate. I'm, <laughs> I'm back on board. It's and okay now. No word of a lie. He said, good, because I quit. And he did. He'd had a really bad time and there was other things going on with him. And, mm -hmm. and it was only because there was two of us and a big network of support that when one of us broke, the other one could keep going. So there was the, the big lesson for me there is you don't actually have to be a superhuman. Right. That doesn't exist. Yeah. Uh, you know, get real. You need other people around to do their thing. Mm. And, and I really felt it there because I did break. You know, mm. I was on the floor, unable to continue. And um, it's only having a great team that literally pick you up and say, take a breather. Mm. But then you see them go at their point, and that's your turn to pick them up and say, mm. look, we're, we're, we're going to get through this. So the encouragement to people who may be at that point or at the breaking point, what would be your advice to them? Or um, It's actually something from Ernesto Soroli, who I heard talk years later at TEDx, and I was fortunate to talk as well. And, and he said, you know, a, a great business or a new venture requires three things. It requires a great product or service. It requires uh, great sales and growth and access to market. And it requires great governance. That's three things. No one human is brilliant at all three. Right. So if you're trying to do something on your own, you need at least two other people mm. to help and they need to be as committed as you. Mm. And, and that was something, you know, I, I learned the hard way. But, but working with Colin and the team here really made me think, OK, I don't have to be great at everything. Mm. I can focus. And, um, and you've got that baked in support network. So if you're thinking of doing something, be very careful if you're thinking you're going to do it on your own. Mm. Because if it's new and dangerous and challenging, it's, mm. you, it's probably going to hurt. Mm. And, and you unless you have a cape and something that I've never experienced like superpowers, <laughs> um, it's, it's probably being unfair to yourself to mm. think you have to do it all on your own. Well, I think that's really good advice because unfortunately in our culture, we tend to idolize certain individuals, you know, like Facebook, we think of Zuckerberg, you know, and um, Microsoft Gates and Apple Jobs, you know, like these were individuals and they're kind of held up as the one who did it you know yeah. but the reality i think is you're right you, you need the team you need the other people with you to go on that journey yeah i'm a big sort of fan of of looking at almost the laws of nature and um the things that seem to spread um there's not just one of them mm. um and for me in a business again you want to look at what is sustainable and um practical and if you are going to go on a journey somewhere take an expedition you know, it's riskier to go on your own. If mm. you're going to create something new, then it, there is a lot of skill sets required in running a business or creating a venture. Mm. And it's pretty arrogant to think that one person has every skill and they're better at it than a team. Right. Um, if you want to go for it, go for it. But it's a bit like saying, I'm going to walk to the North Pole on my own. Right. But very few people can do it. And I doubt they'd say it was a deliciously pleasurable experience no. carrying everything fixing their ankle when it broke, dragging themselves through the snow. Mm. You know, the more CEOs I talk to, the more you can see on their face when you start talking about the pain and those moments. And, and most people I've talked to have said, yeah, thank God X was around. They got me through it. Mm.
Mm, that's great. Can I just talk about the building itself and the mission right now then? Because yeah. some people are listening are in the States or the UK. They've never actually visited. Um, can you just give us a really short summary of, of what you're actually doing, what it's doing now? Yeah, so Epic's a building that has about 300 people in it. It's um, sort of a one and a half story. One side of the building's two story. One side's one story. Mm-hmm. Four and a half thousand square meters. It was built incredibly quickly. I mentioned six months to kind of get the plans together. Six months of due diligence. It only took six months to build it. Mm-hmm. So it's four and a half thousand square meters, and it's very um, high on the earthquake resistance code as well because it had to be safe because we were getting mm-hmm. so many aftershocks. But it also had to be affordable because we were putting not big mm. multinationals in it. We were putting early stage companies, not startups, but companies that, you know, mm. they're growing mm. and they can't spend all their money on marble floors. Mm-hmm. So it's made from LVL, which is um, wood, laminated veneer lumber, which was developed in New Zealand as a, as a sort of solution that's almost stronger than steel, pound for pound. And um, inside the building there's about 15 companies the common thing is they're going global most of them and they're using technology in some way but the industries covered vary from a couple of computer gaming companies to some med tech to e-commerce to web development to it governance um, through to ai and training mm-hmm. so there's a variety of people but we only put companies in here who've got you know something in common mm-hmm. which means actually the, the great thing about the building isn't the building it's the community mm. you know the, the the reason companies want to be in here isn't because we've got a golden lift or a magic tap yeah they want to be around the other businesses right so that's the cross fertilization across disciplines and backgrounds right absolutely and we arrange ceo drinks and um, you know we share news about the companies we promote each company through the website they see what each other's doing and yeah the value of sitting down and saying how are you scaling your sales? Mm. And you see the CEO going, yeah, that's really important. <laughs> How are you doing yours? Right. And, and there's an enormous amount of trust that is developed over time. Mm. But that was something unique with Epic because unlike maybe a lot of hubs where people kind of come in from all different directions and the building is just the common thing, we started with a full building with everybody who'd been through an earthquake together so that we did in a weird way kind of benefit from this common challenge mm-hmm. and this this will to work together to overcome what mother nature had thrown at us which is that is a unique and and mm. in a weird way that helped us build a lot of trust mm. in the building now as people leave and scale and new people come in I think, you know, one of our challenges is to maintain that mm. and, and to keep that collaboration going, real collaboration, not just the word, like companies actually partnering to develop new products and take them to market. And we've got examples of that with gaming companies working with training companies, jointly collaborating to win the Dubai Future Foundation Award, which two of the companies in here have done. Hmm. That's fascinating. I think you're right. There's that commonality of when you started, everybody had been through such a traumatic experience and my view is that it actually shook everything up in terms of the ways people thought as well, that they, that they saw maybe the best of humanity come out in the worst and then were more open-handed and willing to help each other as well. Absolutely. There was an enormous amount of um, overtime yeah. done by the partners that helped build Epic from, you know, BNZ all the way through to our uh, many, many other partners. 
but also the tenants themselves. Um, you know, we designed this building with them. Mm. It wasn't Colin and I went, hey, look at these floor plans. You should all have this. Right. You know, we must have had 15 or 20 meetings with every tenant in the room at the same time. Mm. We had Google help design the building. So Craig Neville Manning, one of the uh, original guys there, he mm. got his team helping us because we didn't know how to build a campus. I've never right. done that. Yeah, I've right. got a clue. But we were open with our weaknesses. Yeah. And we and we tried to work with the best. Mm. So it was a very collaborative um, effort of saying to the tenants, you know, within these constraints, what do you need? Mm-hmm. You know, what would you like the space to look like? If, if we have central kitchens and atriums and windows and meeting rooms, does this work for you as a group? Yeah. So... Um, I think that's one of the reasons a lot of people sort of treat it like their home because they help build it. Right. Yeah. Well, the thing I like throughout our conversation has been this idea that you don't have to be an expert at everything, that it's okay to ask for help, to involve others, you know, that, that we're on journeys, but we can join together. And I think that's um, really valuable and something I'm seeing as well. We talked before we started recording, you know, people who are moving with purpose towards the same direction, maybe on parallel roads, but they can look across at each other and go, keep it up, you're doing well. You know, and that encouragement is so it's vital. It's essential. Yeah. You know, if you're gonna do something that's uh, challenging and maybe hasn't been done before, or it's new or novel in some way, don't fool yourself, it's gonna be easy. And yeah. prepare, you know, plan for the worst, yeah. hope for the best. And if you're planning for the worst, it's like, look honestly at the stuff that you're maybe not great at, mm. and focus on the stuff you're good at and see if, that thing you're not that good at, maybe there's somebody who loves that, mm. nails it. Mm. And if they don't want to work with you, maybe ask yourself why. Mm. You know, what's the hole in the argument here? Can it be filled? The great thing with Epic is we had no time to pitch. We needed to build this because we were going to lose our buildings. Right. So we, it wasn't like, oh, I think I'll take a couple of years. We had to get it done yesterday. Mm. So when I was pitching to these companies to say, you know, will you support us on this project? How much do we... How much do we want to? How much do you want us to pay you to project manage it? Uh, what do you need to do X, Y, and Z? They were very blunt conversations, which forced us to focus on the business model, the skill sets we needed to execute, mm-hmm. and nothing was done on a handshake. You know, mm-hmm. it was all um, learning from previous business experience about surrounding yourself with the best. Mm-hmm. You know, the people who built Epic. Uh, were the very best we could find mm. in New Zealand. Warren and Marnie, the architects, mm. you know, they, these guys do huge projects, mm-hmm. massive projects, much bigger than this. Mm. Um, PwC and Deloitte were across mm. the project. Mm. We we knew we didn't have these skill sets, so we had to convince them. Right. That, that, that forced us to have a very good pitch, mm. which meant we had to have our customers teed up beforehand. Mm-hmm. And we only went to the council for the land after we had the customers and the business partners, if I just rocked up and said, can I have some land, please? Yeah, there was a lot of work behind the scenes to get to the point of saying, can I have the land, please? And I think the reason it worked was that amount of work was split between experts. Again, Mm -hmm. it was that realization that there was a lot we didn't know. So our job was really to convince the experts to get involved. Mm -hmm. Don't try and be a hero, you know, just, just realize the bit that you're good at. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's really good. And I think it's applicable to everyone who's listening because we all have different things we're involved in. You know, these are principles that stand the test of time. Yeah. And I, it reflects to me, I, I saw a video with the CEO of Alibaba talking recently and um, obviously a gigantic company. And yeah. he said something that 
that made me feel a bit more confident. And he said, you know, in your 20s, we try lots of things, very broad spectrum. Mm. In our 30s, most people start to specialize. In our 40s, we can try and achieve mastery in a smaller subset of that specialization. Mm. Maybe in our 50s, if we've done it right, we get to do mentorship. Mm. And, and that was a breath of fresh air for me because it makes me, oh, good, I, don't, I really don't have to be good at everything. Yeah. You know, what, what, what do I enjoy? What's valuable to other people? Maybe that's the di- direction I should be specializing in. Yeah. It's so important, though, because think of all the people who's gone to university or studied or done something, didn't really enjoy it, mm. but oh, I need to get a job. I need to pay the mortgage and end up possibly getting to 70 years old looking back and thinking, why did I do that, you know? (laughs) So if you can have these sorts of conversations, and that's the hope for the podcast is that people listening, maybe some of them are going, maybe I need to get, you know, what do I focus on here? Uh, Absolutely, and and, um, um, I've tried, well, not tried, I'm involved in a lot more things now, Mm -hmm. and now whenever I get involved in a new project, I immediately think of the triangle of the three things that Ernesto Sorolli talks about in his, his talk. I mean, his Sorolli Institute has helped form 40,000 new companies. Wow. So he knows his stuff. Mm. And whenever put, somebody puts something towards me now, I think product, sales, finance, what's the team? Mm-hmm. You know, the idea could be good, it could be great, it could be average, but if there's a good team that's got that nailed, mm-hmm. I'm pretty confident. Right. What's the team? So you're back the team over the idea. Right? Always. <laughs> Always. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's something I see as well. You know, you go to investor pitches and different things and angel groups and things and it's the people that matter and for me it's the you know i use that model of three yeah you know no one's i've yet to meet somebody who's a brilliant sales and business development person Mm. an amazing product designer and a great governance and financial management person Mm. Mm. but they're really important if you want a sustainable venture yeah definitely so if people are interested in finding out more about the building and things is the website the best place for them to go and epicinnovation.co.nz has a bit about our story a bit about what we're doing Mm -hmm. and um, of course all the events that everybody runs here because we've run nearly seven eight hundred events now for nearly twenty thousand people which is something we never planned on but again was a nice it's become a sort of hub hasn't it yeah for that um, was again the idea was not necessarily for it to become that so if we backed the original idea we Mm. might have neglected it but Mm. it was the community that said can people outside Epic use Epic and uh, so yeah 20,000 people have used this building who are not based here Mm. well well, it's been fascinating to talk with you just to hear about your background and I really enjoyed hearing about the impression that New Zealand had made on you the first time that you came but also just reflecting on how the earthquakes and the subsequent um, struggles to build Epic you know what it's actually resulted in in terms of community and um, what I see here is a lot of innovation and people coming together and they are collaborating and working and so it's been it's an exciting thing to watch and um, you know it's a resource I think for Christchurch as an example so thank you yeah Yeah. and for me it reflects that thing that about the importance of team Mm. it's an often used word you could have a team of three brilliant people kicking off a new venture Epic's got 300 people Mm. and there's a lot of good people to meet meet and bump into each other and share ideas and and skill sets yeah yeah well that's definitely been a theme that's come through so hopefully the listeners are picking that up in terms of 
admitting you're not good at everything and Absolutely. asking for help. So, <laughs> so thanks very much for um, joining me today. I really appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Thanks, David. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Will. I really found it fascinating to hear his life story, how he ended up in Christchurch, and his commitment to this city. It's great to have people like him who are really passionate about Christchurch and building up an ecosystem where startups and established companies can really thrive. If you enjoyed this episode, then consider checking out the more than 90 other interviews that are on Seeds Podcast. And if you're able to leave a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, it literally takes about 10 seconds, and I would appreciate that. We're up to nearly 40 of those, and it helps other people find the show. And you might want to check it out on Facebook as well. Until next time. Mm-hmm.